This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 30 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, we are so lucky to be joined by one of the funniest people in the world who also showed this year that he's got a serious side as well and is able to blend the two very effectively at the movies, Adam McKay. You know his work better than his name, but he's been a staple of the comedy scene for decades, first in Chicago where he helped to found the Upright Citizens Brigade and then became a part of Second City, then through Saturday Night Live where he was a writer and director, eventually rising to head writer, and where he and Will Ferrell hit it off. The two have since gone on to make five movies together, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Step Brothers, The Other Guys, and Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. And the two are also behind the hit website FunnyOrDie.com, the first viral video of which, The Landlord, starred McKay's daughter, Pearl. But it's McKay's most recent film, an adaptation of Michael Lewis's 2010 best-selling book, The Big Short, that has proven beyond a doubt that he can do a lot more than quote-unquote just make you laugh. McKay rewrote an adaptation of the book that was written by Charles Randolph, including scenes that break the fourth wall and help audiences to understand the complex situation that helped to bring about America's recent financial crisis. He then directed a dream team including Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, and his longtime collaborator Steve Carell. And the resulting film, which had its world premiere at the AFI Fest back in the fall, has been warmly embraced by critics and audiences and now by awards groups. Randolph and McKay's script has been nominated for the Best Adapted Screenplay Writers Guild of America Award, as well as the USC Scripter Award, and McKay's direction has been nominated for the Top Directors Guild of America Award. The film itself won the Producers Guild of America's top prize two weekends ago, and last weekend was a finalist for the Best Ensemble Screen Actors Guild Award. The biggest headline, though? It's headed to the Oscars, with five nominations. One for Best Supporting Actor for Christian Bale's performance as Dr. Michael Burry, one for Hank Corwin's editing, two for Adam McKay, one that he shares with Randolph for Best Adapted Screenplay, and the other for Best Director, and then, yes, the big one. Best Picture, which it's presently the odds-on favorite to win. So it's a real treat to have with us for the hour, Adam McKay. Let's go to that conversation. Thank you very much for doing this, and I owe you a big congratulations because I haven't seen you since the nomination. So, God, is that true? Really? Uh, wow, thank you, man. Yeah, well, so are you now not Adam McKay, your two-time Oscar nominee, Adam McKay? How does that feel? It's, it's a hard title to enforce. I was at the <laughs> deli today. 
to get a Diet Coke. And I tried to make the guy call me that. He would not do it. And my wife just walks away from me in she silence. Won't. Yeah. First of all, were movies growing up a big part of your life? A huge part of my life. Yeah, I'm definitely a movie guy. Like, uh, was always watching movies as, as a kid. And, you know, back in... Back in my day, uh, they <laughs> wouldn't put out as many movies as they put out now. Right. So I remember the local, the Eric Twin Frasier, which was near where I grew up in this little town called Malvern, had Star Wars ran there for eight straight months. Which state is this? Uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay. And so we would go see these movies five, six, seven times. Airplane wow. ran there for like five months. So we saw Airplane like nine times. Wow. Uh, then, of course, there were UHF, you know, so I would watch movies like Cooley High. It was one that I saw like five or six times. And weird ones like The Great Waldo Pepper, right, for some right. reason, would play all the time. But yeah, I've always been a movie guy, no question. For many people who haven't yet seen The Big Short, they associate you primarily with comedy. Was that something that in your own experience you, you would lean towards comedy even as a kid? You know, there was a moment where comedy kind of blew up, where comedy got really good. Before that, there weren't that many comedies. They were like, a comedy they would make, like when I was a little kid, was like, so fine with Ryan O'Neill. Like, that would be a comedy. And then occasionally Johnny Carson would have a funny stand-up on. Right. So I grew up watching everything. Like, my favorite movie probably as a little kid was like, uh, The Man Who Would Be King. Yeah. It was like one of my yeah. all-time favorites. and. And I would watch a lot of like old World War II movies with John Wayne and like you name it, I would watch it. But it was really when Airplane came out that signaled like a change in kind of comedic culture. That was the first time I remember laughing so hard that like I had a headache. <laughs> and that kind of coincided for me personally anyway with Monty Python and Steve Martin. We started buying their records. It was probably my age. Mm -hmm. I think it was probably around fifth grade mm -hmm. or sixth grade. And and from that point on, it was kind of off to the races. Then comedy became a big, big thing. And we would make our own, like, you know, cassette tapes of our own sketch shows and started doing crank phone calls. <laughs> but at the time, I still would watch all kinds of movies. It was never just comedies. It was always anything that was cool we would watch. How about writing? Because in addition to just, you know, seeming to have a very funny, quick personality, you've also written a lot. How did that start? I'm trying to think, you know, it was probably in high school. I always remember the first, you know, I went to public schools, so the teachers didn't say much to you. <laughs> and I remember the first time I ever got like a compliment from a teacher was, uh, and I remember her name. She probably has no idea who I am. Put it out there, yeah. Mrs. Seeley okay. <laughs> at Great Valley Senior High actually said, I enjoy your writing. Wow. And I was like, whoa, hey. Uh, and then, you know, I, I joke with some friends when I was in college, I was definitely a little bit of a pretentious young man. So <laughs> I was reading, you know, Raymond Carver and Ferdinand Celine and Henry Miller. You and said this was in college? This was in college, yeah. Where did you, where did you go off to? I went to Temple University okay. in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the time you get to be a pretentious young yeah, man. Right. So, uh, so I was also taking fiction writing classes where I would try and write my great fiction, which, <laughs> God, I'm glad that doesn't, no, no copies of those exist anymore. Right. Um, so, yeah, so my, my taste in kind of writing, once again, was all over the place. And, and we had great art house theaters in Philadelphia. So, you know, I remember going to, I used to work at a place, I think it was called the Ritz Five. I was an usher there and used to have to clean the bathrooms. This and, is during college. It was during college. Wow. 
And so I got to see great movies there, like Hope and Glory was yeah. playing, Sammy and Rosie Get Laid, movie of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, and then we had like crappy art house places too that would show like old Kurosawa movies right. and you could uh, see the silhouette of the rats running behind <laughs> the screen while you're watching them. And uh, yeah, so I just always, movies have just always been a huge thing for me. I remember taking whole weekends where I would go, I'm going to watch every Fellini film and just wow. watch them all in a weekend. Wow. And, I'm going to watch every Paul Newman movie and watch, you know, Sydney Lumet. Like, so you're a completionist. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would do a lot of that kind of stuff and started taking screenwriting classes in college as well. And that was really exciting. So when you were at that point in your life, what was your, how did you envision your future? What did you think it would be? It's funny. I never directly thought about filmmaking at that time. That's when comedy really started to kind of blow up. That's when standup was everywhere. Uh, they started opening clubs just, I think Philadelphia had like nine clubs in it. And then if you went to the suburbs, there were like another 20. So I started doing stand-up comedy like on the weekends. I would like MC or middle. The guy in our scene who kind of went on to do well was Paul F. Tompkins. He was like the funniest guy in our group. Uh, I was all right. I was solid. I could get through a set, but Paul was really good. Um, but that's a leap to be doing stand-up at all. I mean, you remember that moment when you decided you're going to try it? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I bombed about six or seven <laughs> times in a row. But I remember like each time I would get one laugh and I'd be like, wait a minute. And finally, there was another guy out of our scene, too, who's a very successful stand up named Keith Robinson. Oh, and yeah. he was kind of the guy, actually. He never bombed. Right. And I remember after like three months of being pretty crappy, I did a set somewhere and he came up and he was like, you got good. And that was once again like Mrs. Seeley right. and Keith Robinson <laughs> are my two thank yous for we my career. We should introduce them. That would be <laughs> <laughs> they would hit it off. They would. Um, so I started doing that and then was always writing sketch and just kind of also was going to college and I was an English major. So I was reading all these books and I was still writing fiction. So there was no real direction to it at that point. It was just sort of, it's the great thing of college. Yeah. You know, I'm just doing all this stuff and having a great time and it wasn't until a friend told me about Chicago and long form improv, this guy, Rick Roman, uh, who's since passed away actually. And he told me about it and said, there's this place where you can go on stage and improvise plays and anything you say happens. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? <laughs> he goes, you can walk on stage and you can say, oh my God, I'm on the rim of a volcano. And he's like, yes. He says, and the only rule is the other person can't say no, you're not on the rim of a volcano. You can't negate what someone else has said. And I was like, well, these sound like cool theater classes. He goes, no, no, no. These aren't theater classes. These are actual theaters where people pay and show up. And it just blew my mind. And instantly I was like, that's it. I'm dropping out of college. I sold my comic book collection. I got a Chrysler New Yorker uh, that literally had an eight track player in it. And boom, we were off to Chicago. Off to Chicago. Yeah. So you went by yourself or you had friends or people you were with going there? I went with my buddy, Rick Roman, who Rick Roman, had, oh, right. had already started doing some of the improv classes. And the main guy he had told me about was Del Close, who a lot of people know is yeah. kind of the, I don't want to say one of the founders or the originators of long form improv. They yeah. always did Viola Spolin, they always did games and they did scenes, but he was the first guy to say, you can do this as like a show. Had you done improv in any major way before? No, no, never done it. I, I think one class, one time, like mm -hmm. I barely even remember it. Yeah. And I had kind of no idea what it was. I'd heard about it. 
maybe once or twice just as like a far away thing. I mean, I sort of thought it was like when you do a stand-up comedy and you just riff off the crowd. That's what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had no idea what I was getting into. And when I arrived in Chicago, we went to a show and it was like in this pizza place, like Papa Milano's, I think it was called. <laughs> and this is where the I.O. was. And this was Del Close and Sharna Halpern's Theater. And their big group they had at that time was called Blue Velveeta. And they were on stage. And I, I literally walked into this and it was like a bad scene out of a movie. Like, you know, the, like there's Buddy Holly, there's the Big Bopper, you know. And on stage was this group and the place is packed. There's like... I want to say 200 people, but it was a long time ago, so yeah. you have to adjust your numbers. Right. So let's say 100. Let's say 100. Right. And the group had a lot of people that have gone on to do other stuff. Uh, there was a guy named Jay Leggett who was on uh, In Living Color. There was a guy named Mitch Rouse who made a bunch of movies and was an actor. I think he still is. A guy named Kevin Dorff who wrote for Conan O'Brien. A woman named Susan Messing who's still big in the Chicago theater scene. I'm, probably, I'm sure I'm forgetting like four or five people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy named Brian Stack on one of the other groups who's currently a writer for Colbert, uh, has been around for a while. So even just walking in the door, that stage already had like eight or nine people on it that would go on to have full careers, wow. you know, doing what we do. But but most of all, they were killing. They were just the crowd was going nuts. It was exciting and it was smart. It wasn't cheap. It was like they really were improvising scenes in front of you and taking their time and and yeah sometimes they would like do something musical and this guy Jay Leggett could really sing and it would like blow the crowd away and stuff but uh but it was just I'd never seen anything like it so I was completely in at that point and started taking classes hanging around anytime there was a stage I would get on it and then slowly out of that you start to build a scene of friends which the group that I sort of you know that we all kind of formed ended up becoming the Upright Citizens Brigade right yeah now, if you did nothing but that, that would be a, a great contribution. So talk about what that was and who some of these other folks were that became a part of it and really like why that was an important period in your life. So we were all doing improv at the I.O. You know, we had been to Second City and Second City kind of had a format they did. And, you know, there was really talented people there, but it just was like, ah, it's kind of not our thing. They did a lot of songs. They did a lot of blackouts, like, you know, quick joke, lights go out. So kind of for us anyway, IO was like the place where it was at. That's where like a lot of the cool people we thought the yeah. cool people were. And then there was another theater that was also kind of burgeoning called The Annoyance. And that was a cool theater. That was like Andy Richter was there and Jill Soloway yeah. and like all these really cool people were there. So that wasn't quite our scene. We were they were a little more musical than we were. We were sort of the obnoxious guys who were into punk rock and hip hop, <laughs> which I think we all remember from the right. early 90s. Yes. We were those guys. <laughs> and so slowly out of our group at I.O., we started studying with Del Close. We just noticed we had a taste for more aggressive comedy and more aggressive music and kind of stranger stuff. It just kept coming up that there was a certain handful of us that had this taste. So we stayed at I.O. We were still kind of their house group. Um, but what we did was we started a side group, the Upright Citizens Brigade, and that was Matt Besser, Ian Roberts, Horatio Sands, and myself. We were the original four members. And we did a show called Virtual Reality in some weird little coffee shop. And the beauty of Chicago is, and to this day it's still true, if you do a show there, you can get reviewed. Uh, like in New York City, you don't get reviewed. No. And, and LA is a weird theater scene because it's so spread out. 
So we did this little show in a coffee shop and we got like Critics' Choice in the wow. reader. Wow. And we got like a great review in New City and like four other good reviews. And pretty soon there were like lines of people around the block wow. for this insane show that we were doing where we were improvising with the audience. We were taking them out into the street and doing scenes in the streets. We like... So every night is different? Uh, every night was the same format, but within it there was improv. Yeah. So anything could happen. Right. So, for instance, one night we used to do a scene. We would take the whole audience out under the street corner outside. The place was called Kill the Poets. That was the name of the place. And, uh, and we would take the audience out under this four-way intersection. And Ian would stand on one corner. I would stand on another. Besser, Horatio. I'm trying to think if we had another guy with us at that point. We might have. Then the group started changing each time, mm -hmm. but the original group was that four. So anyway, we would throw a soccer ball back and forth to each other like we were having a Thanksgiving dinner, but across traffic, like only in <laughs> Chicago could you do this. So Matt Besser is across from me and he's standing, we're on division between Ashland and Damon. And back then that's a scary area. Now it's like super posh and nice, but back then it was scary. So there was a bar in the corner there that had like metal detectors that even for us, we wouldn't go into this bar. That's how scary it was. So in the middle of the scene, Besser's standing in front of this bar. The bouncer comes out and starts beating up Besser. And like, like really punching him. Really? But he's doing it from behind. So Besser thinks it's like Horatio or one of us messing with him. So he's laughing while this guy is pummeling him, like with full-on fists to his head. So this is uh, this, actually happened. This actually happened. And... I go, no, Matt, it's not a bit. And you could see the moment where Besser turns and realizes this is not a bit. And then suddenly he feels the pain of the punches, like oh instantly. And he wriggles free from the guy. I think yeah. he and Roberts ran over and like helped pull him away. Oh and the guy was like, you go not in front of our bar. And, but that was like, we had another time, like Horatio got chased by the police and like ended up climbing up on a roof. There was another time. You Didn't know, you throw a guy off a roof or something? Well, I advertised my own suicide. <laughs> we put posters up all around town and I got on top of a giant building and we brought the audience into the street. And by the way, all of this with no permits, right. no like, God bless the city of Chicago. Right, like right. If, if this were Manhattan or Brooklyn, we would have been arrested instantly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we threw a dummy off the roof that was dressed like me. And I remember it really looked like me, the dummy too. It was a CPR dummy. <laughs> and I remember the crowd gasping the second it started coming over the edge. Like there was a tenth of a second where they thought it was going to happen. Oh and, my gosh. Uh, but yeah, it was an amazing time. It was sort of this combination of like street theater with live prank, with written sketch. We would still do written sketches. We would do improvised scenes. Uh, and then eventually other people started filtering in and out of the group. We had Neil Flynn, you know, who was in uh, the show Scrubs for a while and has been in tons of TV shows. One of the funniest guys ever. Wow. He was uh, in the group for a short while. A guy named Rich Fulcher, who you've maybe heard of, has done a lot of great stuff. He was in a guy named Ali Faranaki and joined us. Uh, eventually, you know, we weren't making any real money doing the Upright Citizen. Even when it was packed each night? Nah. Really? Not really. I mean, maybe we'd split it up yeah. and each walk away with 80 bucks really? or something. Yeah, I mean, we were charging like $3 or yeah, $5 because... Yeah, yeah. That was kind of the aesthetic. I remember Matt Besser was very smart. We were all big Fugazi fans, <laughs> and he loved that Fugazi never charged right. more than five dollars right. a show. And he's held that aesthetic with the UCB wow. to this day. They still charge wow. very low prices. So eventually, they had an audition at Second City, 
And I heard Second City was changing, that they had a new artistic director and they were open to doing different stuff. And I said, guys, I'm broke. I got to go here. So I auditioned and ended up getting into Second into City, Second City. And, and did that. Now, was that where you first met Steve Carell? I did. I did. I actually understudied. They had a main stage cast there that was one of the great main stage casts of all time. It was uh, Steve Carell, uh, Colbert, Amy Sedaris, Paul Danello. Uh, I'm forgetting names once again. But anyway, it was this killer main stage cast. And they, uh, Tom, this guy named Tom Giannis had directed their show. And it was such a good show. So I was in, there's like a whole hierarchy to Second City. Like you start doing touring companies. Then you like understudy the bigger stages. And then you start at, it's below, anyway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I ended up... Uh, 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 understudying the main stage show. So I wow. did like two weeks with that main stage cast. The funny thing is later I told Carell, like when we started working together, he's like, I have no memory of you. <laughs> <laughs> so I clearly made zero impression on him. But he made a big impression on you? Yo, God yeah. yeah. God yeah. Like he was that good? He was that good. He was that good. And he then started dating one of the members of our touring company, Nancy Walls, who's now his yeah. wife. So he then started hanging out with us and would come and do improv sets with us. Then he remembered who I was. Then sure. we would start to play together. And sure. So when it came time to cast Anchorman, I just said to Farrell, I go, look, you know, no one really knew who Carell was at this point. I just go, I got to tell you, I saw that guy for three straight years. He was never not funny. That's great. And I go, I'm, you can't, even brilliant people sometimes miss but I was like I never saw him miss and Farrell was like that's good enough for me so that's how we <laughs> cast him yeah so for you the idea of going from this where you're barely making ends meet to writing and directing movies how did that leap happen I'm sure a lot happened in between but what was the you know general trajectory so you know while I'm doing Chicago while I'm doing Upright Citizens Brigade and IO and studying with Del Close and all that stuff Chicago that I'm sure it still is is a great town as far as like music and the arts and so it was a really lively place there was just a lot of really cool theater groups there and a lot of amazing like independent filmmakers and musicians and so part of the kind of cool thing about being there was like yeah we were doing upright citizens brigade but we were checking out all this other stuff that was going on and more and more i started writing scripts and becoming interested in cinema even in films like or literally cinema. Like yeah. I was starting to look at stranger art films and just becoming, like I remember seeing a movie called, uh, was it called La, La Belle Nassus that was like six hours long and like. Wait, was that, is that Jacques Rivette? Cause he just died today. I, I think it's like, no, no that's not. It's no, not. I think that's who it is. Is it? Yeah. Cause I hadn't heard the movie and then I looked at the old bit today and that was one you of the. You've got to be kidding I think me. So. Isn't that and crazy? I'm mentioning this. You're mentioning on the day. And like no one would go with me, and I was like, "I'm going." And they had like three intermissions in the movie. It was so long. You gotta be kidding me! He just passed. I'll, I'll have to check if it's the same. Um, maybe I'm confusing the title. I now. might be getting the name wrong of the filmmaker too. But um, but anyway, so once again, there was this whole side to Chicago. Yeah. So I then got hired at Saturday Night Live as a writer, and that's a, once again a great playground. You're in New York City. You can write all kinds of different sketches. And the great thing was Lauren let you produce your sketches. So Lauren came out though to Chicago and was looking for talent and that's how he found you? Yeah. Yeah, they were, uh, you know, I don't know. A lot of people don't remember it, but there was a point for Saturday Night Live where they were kind of in trouble. Yeah. Where there was a famous New York Magazine cover that was like, 
Saturday Night Live Dead or whatever. And it had like Chris Farley on the cover, which oh, that ended up being ironic in yeah, a different way, but yeah. in a dark way. Yeah. Uh, so they had had a big changeover of their cast. Yeah. I think a lot of the cast was leaving anyway. Yeah. And a lot of the writers were leaving anyway. So there was this big hiring spree. So yeah, they came to Second City, Groundlings. They were looking at stand-ups. They were looking for everyone. And I auditioned as a performer but I knew full well I didn't do impressions. I didn't do big giant characters. Right. So I made sure to bring my sketches with me <laughs> and uh, got hired as a writer. I believe this is the case. It was like seven years on SNL as a three of them as the head writer, right? And also directing. And what were the biggest takeaways from that? I think one of them might have been a, a friendship. But sure. maybe you could just talk about the SNL years. Yeah, well, you know, I, I got to know a lot of people that I still work with to this day. I mean, obviously the biggest one being Will Ferrell and I, you know, uh, ended up forming a partnership out of that and started writing together and really discovered that we had like remarkably similar tastes yeah. in comedy and the way we worked. We're both kind of low drama guys and, yeah. uh, you know, we like to work hard, but we're not like crazy overthinkers, right. which people who don't like our movies now will <laughs> laugh at the comment I just said. Um, and uh, so you had that friendship. We met people like Andrew Steele, who's the, you know, now the creative head of Funny or Die. We met guys like Matt Piedmont and uh, you know, Molly Shannon. And so all these people that would become part of the work we've done now for years and all kinds of different writers like Rob Carlock, Dennis McNicholas. There was like some really talented people there. And uh, and then also out of that, yeah, I was a staff writer for one year. Then I got made head writer for three years. And I was going to leave and ended up staying for two years. And that was when I finally really got to direct. God bless Lauren Michaels. I said, hey, man, I want to do short films. And he was like, let's do it. So the short films were like, give an example, if you don't mind, just because I'm wondering if directing for TV is actually helpful for when you're then when you then made the leap to film full films. Was it actually a similar process? You know, I called them mini features. Yeah. So they were on 16 millimeter and I did, I think my first year I did six or seven of them. Um, there was one I did with Steve Buscemi that was about a pawn shop that sold used food. Uh, <laughs> they were all kind of absurd and strange. Right. There was one with uh, Ben Stiller where he brags he can pick up uh, Glenn Fry, who also <laughs> sadly just yeah. passed away. Yeah. And Farrell plays Glenn Fry, who kind of abuses Stiller and... We did another one with Willem Dafoe and Andy Richter. We did uh, we did a bunch of them. I did one that was about Neil Armstrong uh, living in Ohio in the suburbs. I just became fascinated <laughs> with the guy who was the first man on the moon lives in Ohio in the suburbs. So I just did a thing about him going to buy like nachos at the corner store. And the whole time in his head, he's like, I landed on the moon, you know. <laughs> But it was great. I worked with this amazing DP. Um, God, no, I'm spacing on his name. I want to say Anthony Clark. Sure. Is that right? Oh, he <laughs> shot Bruno. Okay. So people can check it right yeah, now. Yeah. I'm spacing on his name. But he was a really talented young DP. And they all look fantastic. And I got great actors. And it was completely like a film set. I mean, we treated it like each one was a mini feature. And I actually designed credits for them and oh, wow. score them. Wow. and. Um, and just kind of right away when I started doing that, I was like, this, this feels really good. This feels right. Like writing this crazy stuff, shooting it, cutting it, like every stage of it, I just loved. As you say, you composed music as well. Is that right? Uh, for those, we would use, you know, Hal Wilner was the music supervisor. So he would give us a lot of music. I wrote a lot of music for sketches. Okay. I would write lyrics 
and our amazing musical director, uh, Cheryl Hardwick, would write the music. So I kind of also at that time got into writing like songs a lot and had a lot of fun doing that. Um, yeah, so it was incredible. And then I did a second year that we moved to digital shorts because we realized 16 millimeter right. was a little more expensive. Right. And I did a bunch more of them then. And uh, off of that, finally thought, okay, it's time to move on. And, you know, had started writing with Will and off of a, a script I wrote with him, August Blowout. Mm-hmm. Never was made, but got some attention as a writer and started getting jobs, started right. getting rewrite jobs. And that was it. That was how I made the transition. What was the first directing opportunity? First directing opportunity after Saturday Night Live was uh, we tried to do August Blowout. We tried very hard. I give Lauren a lot of credit. He really pushed Paramount and they just would not make it. And they wanted me to direct it and, you know, obviously Will to star in it. And, you know, hey, studios sometimes don't see it. Sometimes they see it. In this case, they didn't. Um, So... After that, we said, well, the heck with it. We can write another script. So we wrote Anchorman. And we thought, okay, this will be it. And every single studio and finance company in Hollywood said no. Oh, my God. Like, I think without exaggeration, one day, like, 28 no's came in. <laughs> and we were like, ah, oh, I guess that's it. I guess, like, our things aren't ever really going to be made. So... He had already shot Old School, but it hadn't come out. Mm-hmm. And then so he was going to go do Elf. And I did a big rewrite of Elf. So it was Farrell and I sitting in an apartment and we were like, we're writing a script where he's a grown man playing an elf. And we just looked at each other. We're like, how did it come to this? <laughs> oh, man. And we're like, we better make this good. Yeah, like, yeah. And then in the middle of that, Old School came out. And wow. God bless Todd Phillips. Mrs. Seeley, Keith Robinson, <laughs> and Todd Phillips. Those are the Those three, are the three people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Todd yeah. Phillips saw what we saw in Will Ferrell and put him in a big role, and and that was it. That wow. was it. Everything broke open. Suddenly, studios that had passed on Anchorman started calling, calling and saying, "Hey, what about that Anchorman right. script?" <laughs> and that was it. Then DreamWorks. Uh, there was actually like a little tiny mini bidding war for it, and DreamWorks got it. Wow. And. Uh, off to the races. And that was it. Yeah. Off to the races. Yeah. I hope you kept like a binder of all the no letters for, for before. Unfortunately, there were phone calls. They oh, weren't phone letters. Calls? Oh, okay, okay. I do remember one because, you know, people are smart in this town. They're right. never rude to you because right. they know that things come around right. and you never know. But there was one studio where it was the, the woman who ran the place and her like second in command gave me a long lecture about how comedy works. Whoa. And they were saying how they were doing like a Wes Anderson movie and this is comedy. And what you guys are talking about, no. And I said, you know, I don't know. We're pretty established in the comedy community. I I think people would see this. And I remember the guy goes, well, yeah, make sure to buy your friends a lot of tickets. And they both laughed. That was the one. And I hope you remember their name. Uh, I definitely remember their names. I'm too much of a, I almost want to, I'm almost creepy enough to say it, but I won't do it. Um, But anyway, that was the one I remember that was like rude. Everyone else was just like, hey, I don't see it. I get that. Like if you run a studio, it's a hard job. So So just to refresh for people who may not realize how many of these movies they love, you were responsible for in large part. Let's just talk purely about the Feral collaborations. Sure. You got... Anchorman, Legend of Ron Burgundy, Talladega Nights, Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Step Brothers, the other guys. I think those were the the four that you two have done, right? That are features, or am I uh, missing one any? more? Anchorman two, of course. Anchorman yeah, yeah, two, yeah. yeah. You you mentioned that you and Will like click on a lot of levels. Can you? By the way, also there's like 
five other ones where I did rewrites, you know, like major rewrites, that even though I'm not credited in can, it. Can, like, you, like, can you talk about them? Are you uh, well, I mean, yeah, sure, because yeah. sometimes they're movies we've produced, yeah, so, yeah. you know, everyone kind of knows we're involved. But, like, Elf being a big one, I did right. a big rewrite on that. Right. Uh, the Campaign, yes. uh, did a big, you know, helped with that quite a bit. Uh, Get Hard, I helped with quite a bit. I'm sure I'm still forgetting about a couple, but but yeah, generally when he's working on some sort of movie, if he needs help, we'll always come in and, and do some rewriting. So so I feel like you know involved in in a lot of those movies. But the big five are the you know there's nothing like directing a movie. Are those right. those five are the ones we've done? So you say you you guys collect a lot and you continue to collect a lot. Obviously, can you pinpoint why that is like particularly and also what makes him so good? Because you have the you've had the front row seat. I think the thing that works about our, our collaboration is once again kind of the no drama thing. Like neither one of us really. Some people feed on kind of manufacturing drama and conflict, and just neither one of us care about that. Like we want to have fun. Like the reason we're doing this is because we enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So also, I give Farrell a lot of credit. He's really great at like delegating authority. Like he just kind of lets me do my thing. He lets me do my cut. He's not one of those guys that's over my shoulder. He trusts me. Uh, and then, you know, he comes into the process once we've done a couple cuts of the movie and he always gives great notes. And and then obviously we write together and it's just in our entire, I mean, this is crazy, in our entire collaborative history, which I guess started in, you know, we met in 95. I think we really started working together in 96, 97. But in that entire time, we've never had one creative argument ever. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We've had arguments. We have a production company together. We've yes. had a couple arguments over that. Right. But we've never had one creatively because ultimately I just trust him and he trusts me. And if right. one of us feels strong uh, enough about something, we'll just go, okay, you let's do him. it. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So I have to ask you, just because I get such a kick out of this, what is what is Gary Sanchez Productions and Gloria Sanchez Productions? <laughs> so Gary San- Gary Sanchez is a was a professional kicker in the NFL through the uh, like late late seventies into the eighties into the early nineties. Kickers have long careers, right. so he played for like the Vikings, the Chiefs, the Oilers, like all these different teams. He's from Paraguay. Made a lot of money playing in the NFL, but you know has made a lot of money since then. Some people would say through nefarious means. <laughs> I, I respect Mr. Sanchez quite a bit. Uh, and at a certain point, I guess he he was suffering, uh, grieving for the loss. He collects horses. One of his great stallions had died. And he watched uh, Talladega Nights, and it made him laugh. And he said he had a tear and a smile at the same time. So he called us. And said, I will pay for, you know, broken English. But he's like, anything you crazy men want to do, I will pay for. So it's been great. He finances everything we do. Maybe twice a year we'll get a call and a helicopter will pick us up. And we'll go to a boat in international waters. And we'll spend a day with him. But other than that, he just gives us creative freedom. And it's been an amazing experience. And he, even though he's from a very traditional South American culture... 
he always says, I love, I love the women's uh, is what he says. (laughs) And so we talked about the idea. I said, you know, sometimes Hollywood's not as kind to the women's. And he said, well, why don't you do a division? And of course he didn't say division, but he just once again threw a big chunk of money on the table and said, do the Gloria. And so Jessica Elbaum, very talented uh, producer, heads up Gloria Sanchez. And that's a a wing of Gary that's developed, you know, uh, looking to develop talented female writers, directors, actors, you name it, just visions and voices. So that's been great. We've already made a couple movies under that banner. And uh, and once again, Gary, as long as Gary's happy, everyone's happy. <laughs> there was one time he wasn't happy and I don't, I can't speak of it. You can't. That's as much as I can say. Can you confirm or deny that he's very close friends with the Coen Brothers editor? I think, uh, I can't remember, Mr. Jenks or something. I The... The um, it's a it's a strange name, but do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if they've ever spent time together. Right. Um, Gary knows a lot of people. <laughs> you'll see him in photos, like there'll be a conference in Davros, <laughs> and then you'll see him in the background. Right. Or he's just in a lot of strange places. <laughs> a bit of a zealot figure. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to ask invite him to do this at some point. He will podcast. not do it. He will There's not no do way it. He will do it. No. No. <laughs> So a big turning point, I guess, in your life and in your career, we can now say, was when you first encountered the big short, the book, Michael Lewis. I wonder if you can share what led you to encounter it and what that experience was like. Well, yeah, we'd always been, Farrell and I had always been playing with these comedies, the idea of having kind of a point of view to them, as silly as they are that there could be something that there are, you know, we just really believe they have to be about something. It, once again, as slapsticky, absurdist as they are, you know, Anchorman really was making fun of the fact that, you know, the news had kind of become a joke. It was so ratings driven. And Talladega Nights was made during the peak of Bush's popularity and kind of red state culture. And so we always had that kind of at the center of what we did. So we did the other guys. We talked about what the villain should be. And of course, when you do a cop movie, everyone's like, well, it's a drug smuggler, it's a gangbanger. And I'm like, really? Like $5 trillion just disappeared because of Wall Street. Like, you know, millions of people lost their homes. So we decided to make that movie kind of a absurdist comic parable for the collapse and for Bernie Madoff. And out of that, I tend to be a bit obsessive. So I just started reading a lot of stuff and reading a lot of books and articles and uh, one of our producers, Kevin Messick, actually got me on the phone with like Paul Krugman. Really? And I got to talk to him about the collapse. And wow. this other economist from NYU, his name escapes me right now. So I just kind of dug and dug. And, and by the end, I had like a, a decent sort of view of what had happened enough to, to do that movie. Um, but then no one really picked up on it. Like we made the movie and the movie did really well. We were happy with it. Some, I'm very happy with it. There's some mm-hmm. great stuff in that right. movie. And and I remember when the credits came, everyone was kind of taken aback by it. I'm like, why are you doing these credits about the crash? And I was like, the whole movie is about yeah. the crash. Uh, but no big deal, whatever. We still love the movie. And off of it, I just, you know, sort of got a an interest in finance and the in economics and the whole world of it because I've always been pretty politically active and I started realizing that oh my god finance and economics are like 70 80 percent of politics that's where it's coming from it explains so many things so I just started reading books just even casually and when you start doing that of course you read the big short and that was the book I read where I was like holy crap (laughs) Uh, this is one of the most entertaining informative gut-wrenching, infuriating books I've ever read. Like, I just thought, 
you know, if you're going to do the collection of five books that explains the times we live in, if you're going to give it to someone from 100 years from now, that would be one of the books I would put in there. How long did it take you to read it? Uh, one night I read it in. <laughs> I picked it up around nine o'clock and uh, was up all night. And the next morning, my wife was like, what were you doing? I was like, this book is incredible. <laughs> uh, I remember talking to my dad like about five days later too. And I said, hey, you got to check out uh, The Big Short. And he's interested in this stuff mm-hmm. too. And he goes, okay. And he read it in one night. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. He's like, you were so right. That's amazing. Oh my God. Um, so yeah, so like two years went by and I just assumed because I was a comedy director, there was no way I would get a shot at doing this. And uh, my agent Cliff Roberts at WME asked me, he says, if, you know, because things were going really well. You yeah. know, I, I started to branch out a little bit from the comedy. I'd, I'd written uh, Ant-Man yeah, and... Yeah. Uh, and Anchorman 2 had done really well. Paramount was happy with that. And uh, I had some other projects going on that were going well. And he just said, if you could do anything you wanted to do, what would you do? And before I knew it, I just said the big short. Wow. And and what was his reaction? Let me make a call wow. immediately. And uh, he called Mark Evans over at Paramount. And he goes, before I go any further, would you ever entertain this idea? And God bless Mark Evans. He said, uh, sure. We love McKay. Because Paramount had the... The rights to the book? Uh, Plan B Entertainment okay. had the rights okay. under Paramount's umbrella at the time. Gotcha. Now I think they're at New Regency. Yes. Right? They met. And uh, so before he went into Plan B, he checked with Mark Evans, who was cool with it. And then Plan B, it was like, we sort of knew about, like knew that I was a guy that was into politics, had read some of the stuff yeah. I'd written on HuffPost, knew yeah. about some of my other interests, knew that I was had tried to do other projects. Uh, Jeremy Kleiner is like the consummate consumer of information yeah. so he kind of knew everything about me uh, and then I just had the best meeting with Dee Dee Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner I was like these people are awesome and there wasn't any sort of like thinking that it was way outside the box for them to go for it they were open to the a different kind of take on it Dee Dee Gardner always jokes she's like she keeps saying like duh how did we not think of this because I guess they had had a little bit of a hard time right. cracking how to, you know, get it greenlit. Yeah. Like they had a very good script from yeah. Charles Randolph. And that was the other good news. Then I read the script and I was like, wait a minute. Right. There's some really good stuff in this right. script. So I knew we were in great shape at that point. But that they had no problem with the fact that I had done comedy just because we're in the room having a conversation about it. So they could tell that I somewhat knew what I was yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah. But the biggest leap was what I wanted to do with it, that I wanted to break the fourth wall, that I wanted to talk to the audience. That was the part I thought could scare them and Paramount. But, you know, we were at the script stage at that point. They said, go for it. Let's take a look at it and see how we feel about it. And it was amazing. Plan B, once again, Dee Dee, Jeremy, Pitt, they all were like, go further, go wow. further. That's so it was, uh, it was such a great response to get. A few questions about writing, because first of all, there's original writing, obviously, there's co-writing, which you've done a lot of with Will and with other people, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's rewriting, which is what you've done, you've said in the past. But in this case, I mean, it could be a hit or miss kind of thing, an experience. Here you say you there. Charles Randolph had a really good script to begin with. You come in and so if, can you share like... Because I've never seen somebody who's been rewritten or somebody who rewrote where those guys get along as well as you and he do and are so ha- you know complimentary of each other. Maybe you can just share what was it from his work that most impressed you and, and lives on through the film and then what beyond and, and the for- breaking the fourth wall is a major one of the contributions, but I think you did a lot more than that. So maybe just if you could dissect what we ended up with, how that came to be. You know, I think the reason Charles Randolph was so happy was because 
I, I, I'll pat myself on the back on this one thing. Mm-hmm. I think I kept the right stuff from his yeah. script. Like, right. there was some really good stuff that I kept. And I think when he read my rewrite, he was like, oh, he kept the good stuff. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, we all write scripts and some yeah. stuff's better than others. Um, you know, I just basically gave the film... Uh, I just put it into a bit of a faster gear. Uh, I obviously broke the fourth wall. I put in the explanations. I made the Ryan Gosling character, Jared Vennett character, the uh, narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I rewrote a bunch of scenes. Uh, it just kind of changed the timbre. Um, I, it's hard for me to remember right now specifically everything because it's all kind of merged together. But... Um, and yet kept these great sequences that Randolph had written. Like he had written the Florida sequence, mm-hmm. which is central in the yeah. movie. And he had written, you know, some of my favorite lines in the movie, like they're not confessing, they're bragging, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so it's kind of a mix. I, I rewrote the whole um, uh, Mark Baum slash Steve Eisman kind of family breakdown moment. I had to like rewrite that. I, I rewrote the young guys, Jamie and Charlie, yes. quite a bit. That yes. was a big rewrite that I did on the script. But I, without getting into the list too much, because that can get tricky, because mm-hmm. right? I, I actually don't entirely remember mm-hmm. what's what. Um, I think the reason it worked was because it was so clearly segmented. Like, And I think that's also why the script worked, where we kind of blended these styles. Like, He has a very different style than I do. And he writes great, really subtle, smart dialogue. And and I tend to go a little bit faster, a little bit more with a hammer. Right. So the blend of the two just worked really well. And Charles is a great guy. And he read it and he knew it. And I read it knowing that a lot of his stuff was right. in there and I knew it. So Because it doesn't always go that well, right? I mean, it can, it can go really bad. I've had some <laughs> awkward encounters with rewrites where I'm at a party and someone is across the room, right. you know, cursing me out to their friend or... I've had it where I've done a giant rewrite and then someone tries to change the name on the rewrite page. I mean, I've seen some sleazy stuff with rewrites and I've seen people get mad and I've seen people fight over credits and uh, it can get really ugly. Um, I personally always am pretty laid back about the rewrites, but... Uh, yeah, in the case of this, this was a, he sent me an email before the movie was even greenlit. Wow. So this is the point at which you could complain. Right. Because a lot of times if you rewrite someone and then the movie gets green, greenlit, then they like you. Right. Now they're getting a bonus, you know. But this was even before that. He sent wow. me the most gracious email going, man, I love what you did. You woke the whole movie up and you took this and that. And, That's great. And then I was able to write him back and go, well, man, thank you. But, you know, this stuff is working. So we've kind of become friends yeah, through this. Seems and that way, yeah. have talked about writing something together. And uh, wow. he's a super interesting guy, man. He was yeah. like a, a philosophy professor really? in Vienna. Wow. And <laughs> grew up in like an evangelical family and like... Wow. He's really funny, whip smart. Yeah. So uh, I, I've really enjoyed this kind of, I, I always call it like an e-date collaboration. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, right. we had quite an affair on uh, online. <laughs> right, right. And by the time we met, we were already married. So uh, yeah. arranged marriage. When you were writing, were you writing with people in mind? Yeah, I always do that. Um, I always have sort of my dream actors in mind. Never, ever does it end up being them. Uh, in this case, it ended up they all said yes, which is effing crazy. That's unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, it helps me. It helps me to think of certain people that just inspire me. Like, you know, it's one scene, but the ratings agency lady, I just was like, that's got to be Melissa yeah. Leo. Like, has to be. And, <laughs> and, you know, Christian Bale, I knew from the beginning, that has to be Dr. Burry. And, 
Uh, and Gosling was always like the guy for that. The only one I didn't know was uh, Pitt because they had told me like he's already done a Michael Lewis book. Right. He's a producer. I go, no problem. And then he read it as a producer. I was like, I want to be in this. So wow. that was like a pleasant surprise as it turned out. Was there ever any shot that Farrell could be in this one? You know, the good news was that we were doing quite well through Gary Sanchez with Farrell. So we were in the midst of making back-to-back movies for him because wow. we were doing Get Hard and then Daddy's Home, right, which right. both ended up doing really well. In fact, I think Daddy's Home is going to be his highest grossing movie ever. Wow. So wow. so uh, at one point I talked to him about it because I certainly had some ideas and he's so gracious. He was just like, man, go do one without me. Come wow. on. And uh, so, man, oh, man, did it work out well that this movie did what it did. And then at the same time, Daddy's Home was a big, fat hit for those guys and for our company and stuff. We we couldn't be happier. I think a lot of people would love to know how that phone call goes because they love the cameos in this movie. They come out. That's one of the things people are talking about. How does that phone call go to Margot Robbie so that she ends up in a bathtub on some movie set somewhere? You know what you're doing? You're really relying on the fact that that's a hip, cool person. Right, right. Because it's clearly a satirical joke on junky (laughs) pop culture and sexism and, you know. So we just did due diligence. And everyone had said, Margot Robbie is the coolest. She will get this joke. And that's it. Once I heard that from four or five people, because you don't want to insult anyone. Right, right. And uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember at Saturday Night Live writing a commercial parody that was called Old Glory Insurance. And it was insurance for the elderly against being attacked by robots. <laughs> and it was clearly a scam. It was clearly like one of those right, ripoff right. elderly people insurance commercials where they just were preying on, you know, uh, elderly people with dementia. And we sent it to the guy, oh, what was his name on the original, like, MASH show? Was it Mike Farrell? Was that his name? I think that sounds right. We sent it to him, and he's a big political activist. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And he did not get the joke. <laughs> and he wrote us back, and he's like, how dare you get laughs at the expense of the elderly? And we're like, no, it's making fun of right. the people that do that. Right. It's not. And, like... So there's a chance when you send someone a script like that that they could respond that way. But we kept hearing from people, she's cool, she's cool, she's cool. And then sure enough, she immediately got the joke and was like, oh my God, I love this. And like actually showed up on set and like thanked me for like getting to be in the movie. And also loved the whole script too. It was really cool. So she completely got it. She was played. We improvised like the, the, uh, you know, F off at the end of it was (laughs) improvised. And uh a lot of kind of the vibe of it and stuff we were just kind of playing with on the set. So it's awesome. So yeah, that was a pleasure. And then you know, obviously Anthony Bourdain's a super cool guy. We knew he would get it. And uh, the other one that was a nice surprise was <laughs> Selena Gomez. Right. We we kept hearing she was cool. That right. like Ryan Gosling sort of gave her the thumbs up. Like no, no, she's cool. And sure enough, she got it too. That's so uh, so it was great. Yeah. So beyond those cameos, was improv something that you felt as comfortable doing on this one as you do on stuff where you're working from your own material? When I say your own material, your entirely own material. Uh, it, it was fine in this case. I mean, I knew where to do it and where not mm-hmm. to. You don't want to do it with any of kind of the the bones of the story. But, you know, in cases like Carell and the Front Point guys, like I hung out with those real guys. They're really funny. And they do bust each other's balls and they quote movies and they tell bizarre stories. And Jamie and Charlie, the young guys, have this funny kind of 
whip smart yet neurotic kind of dynamic and so I sort of knew from meeting everyone like the personality and that was the area where I could mess around and we could play around so you know the volume of improv on this is about a fifth or like a sixth of what I would normally do on a comedy but it's definitely there I mean Brad Pitt really liked it. I mean, one of my favorite lines in the movie is when he tells Jamie and Charlie, uh, all right, I got to go. I got to go get a colonic. <laughs> and Finn Whitrock breaks. Right, right. And Hank Corwin, my editor, God bless him, he put the break in the movie. But that was that was Pitt just sitting back off camera uh, improvising. And that, there's a lot of beats in there uh, that just came out of straight improv. I think that as a director, you made a lot of interesting choices and also surrounded yourself with interesting people i mean hank corwin is an example where i think most people associate him with like the terrence malick kinds of movies right and so what was it like working here where you and he decided to do a lot of very interesting creative things same with your cinematographer where the kind of shaky camera almost Mm -hmm. like some maybe the office inspired it or something um just as a director it feels like you took things to a different level on this one which has been recognized by a lot of people i guess You know, all of those came out of just very specific thoughts about the movie. You know, like I said, I watch a lot of movies. So I went and basically inhaled any movie that was remotely near this genre. So I watched, you know, all the Costa Gravas films. I watched all the Greengrass movies. I watched Winter Bottom. I watched, you know, you name it. I watched the the sort of early 70s distrust and authority movies like Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, and just and all the President's Men and just watched all these movies and you know, obviously read the book like seven, eight times, just tried to really kind of get it in my muscles. And what what I realized was that like a lot of the other Wall Street movies, these great Wall Street movies, like the original Oliver Stone one and Margin Call, which are fantastic movies, are usually telling it from the perspective of kind of the power players. So they tend to have this traditional kind of proscenium framing to them and the lighting is very foreboding. And so it's like a Fincher vibe to yeah. the way they're done. And I thought this is not that story. These are the weird, fringy, outsider, loudmouth, neurotic, <laughs> pit stains on their shirt. These are the guys who are afraid to make eye contact with you. And so I wanted this to feel moment to moment like the anxiety they felt, the excitement they felt. Uh, and it just kept coming back to Barry Ackroyd. I mean, he is the master of that verite docu-style. Um, and then I wanted the movie, obviously, to kind of feel like uh, a little bit like a collage of our culture, because I wanted to sort of show what America was thinking when it's happening. Sort of like, you know, John Dos Passos kind of thing where you're hearing like snippets of music yeah, and seeing yeah. headlines and stuff. So when you start thinking that, you quickly come upon one guy, Hank Corwin. Yeah. And so, you know, I talked to some editors, I talked to some DPs, but in both cases, my first thoughts were the correct ones. And Dee Dee Gardner had given Hank Corwin a big thumbs up, like, this is your guy. Because they had done, they'd done Tree of Life. Tree of Life, Life yeah. yeah. And within 20 minutes of talking to him on the phone, same with Ackroyd, I was like, this is our guy. This is our guy. Wow. And sure enough, both of them clicked perfectly. Just amazing artists, like accomplished heavyweight guys yeah. Who their DNA is all over this movie. Wait, that almost sounds gross. <laughs> <laughs> their fingerprints are right, all over right, this movie. Right. It's a little less, uh, a little less gross. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was how I came about it. I mean, it was like specifically I wanted this movie to feel different than those other movies. And uh, and when you do that, you come upon names like great, great talents like Hank Corwin and Barry Ackroyd. What was it that you hope people will leave this movie thinking or feeling or doing differently? Because as you say, sometimes you go to a movie and 
usually you go to a movie and you're meant to relate to one of the main protagonists or empathize with them or whatever. In this case, you don't have that crutch in a way. So what is somebody supposed to leave here if you could will it, you know, thinking or doing in the real world? Yeah, I I think the big thing is just the conversation about bank reform and the power the banks have just stopped at a certain point. And you're not hearing it in the presidential debate, especially in the Republican ones. They don't talk about it at all. Yeah. In fact, if anything, they want to roll back Dodd-Frank, the little bit of reform we got. Uh, And then the Democrats, yeah, they argue about it in a certain way. But I, I just get the sense in general that the conversation kind of went away. And the truth is, these banks have gotten way bigger, 30 to 40% bigger. The ratings agencies are three times bigger. This is a major problem. When this goes south, it affects us all. It's like the ground we walk on, homes, you know, college, so, you know, uh, loans, like everything, your car, everything is connected to this. And so my idea was like, let's make a movie that demystifies it. Let's go deep inside this world and show you that, hey, you're not an idiot. It's not boring. It's actually crucial and you can talk this language. So we don't really give explicit instructions to the audience what to do, but we just wanted the audience to walk around in this world, feel comfortable with it, be excited by it, be infuriated, understand it. And from then on, my dream would just be that candidates, whether they're for Senate, Congress, president, state reps, be peppered with questions about why are you taking money from banks? Why are you taking money from banks? And if you're taking that money, why did you then vote against reform? It seems to me like you're selling us out. And you're a Bernie guy? Is that I'm, right? Yeah, I'm a Bernie guy. Although with this movie, I kind of stepped back from yeah. that because I yeah. wanted the movie to just speak for itself. Sure. The main reason I'm a Bernie guy is he takes no money from banks, no money from oil companies, no money from weirdo billionaires. So that would be my dream response, because I don't think this is a right-left issue, but we should all be asking these mofos (laughs) why they're taking all this money and selling us out at every turn. Because I'll tell you, everyone in D.C. knows that town is owned by banks. You guys, congratulations, won the PGA Award. Going into the SAG Awards, very celebrated there as well. Five Oscar nominations, including two for yourself. Best picture. I mean, people are loving this movie, and, and you are... I think being appreciated to an extent maybe that didn't exist before. Not that you weren't appreciated, but sure. this like, you know, no, this know is like you, you get you respect as well as acclaim and all of that. Yeah. So how does it feel? And can two time Oscar nominee Adam McKay now go and do another raunchy comedy or, or does this change things? I don't think it has. I mean, I think no matter what, you're always just chasing the right movie. That's all you're trying to do. And and the game I always play is, am I willing to spend the next year and a half of my life working on this? Mm-hmm. So whatever I'm going to do, it has to pass that threshold. So it may be a super dark drama. It mm-hmm. may be, you know, I'm sure I'll do more comedies with Farrell. It may be something similar to The Big Short, where it's kind of that collage style, but about a different subject. I think the nice thing that's happened from this is I'm now able to say that sentence. I'm now able to say, maybe it's an action film, maybe it's this. So it definitely opened up the opportunities. But but it's funny, the whole time you were making the movie, I never thought of it as, I'm doing something different. Like, you just chase the movie is kind of all you do. And... uh, but there's no question we're thrilled with the reaction it's getting because right. that's why we made it. Right. Well, I can't thank you enough. You've been truly one of the loveliest people to deal with this whole season and movie's terrific and I just uh, appreciate it very much. Well, my thank pleasure, you. man. And thank right. you for all your support, too. Absolutely. Take-